0: May 18th, 1980, 41 years ago nearly, Mount St. Helens in Washington State, the volcano erupted. Now in spite of the fact that it's in a very rural area of the state, and of the mountains, 57 people died. Some of that was because they just didn't realize how powerful it was going to be when it erupted. But some, some just didn't believe it would happen. In spite of the fact there were numerous earthquakes, all sorts of volcanic activity, and warnings for two months, Harry Randall Truman, the 83-year-old owner and caretaker of Mount St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake, did not leave. Others were evacuated. He refused to go. He told reporters, I don't have any idea whether it will blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. On march eighteenth, nineteen eighty, Harry and his lodge were buried under one hundred and fifty feet of mud and debris and came down a mountain as a result of the volcanic eruption. Sad story. But one that illustrates the principle we want to look at this morning. And that principle is this. If you are unprepared to face temptation, then you're preparing to fail the test. It's as simple as that. Being unprepared, just waiting for the moment, hoping maybe somehow at the last moment you'll be able to handle it, will not work. You see, what happened to Harry Randall Truman happens to all of us all the time, spiritually speaking. We are caught unaware by temptation. We're caught off guard. We're unprepared. And we fail. We yield to the temptation before us and probably suffer for it. Our passage this morning deals with a lot of things, but the thing I want to emphasize is simply this. Temptation is coming. If we're going to be able to handle it, we have to be prepared. The disciples were not. Now we come to week, as we come to Passion Week, uh, day. Thursday, as far as our calendar is concerned, they had other names for it and so on. Last week we looked at the Passover meal, which was on Thursday, but now we are into Thursday evening, in fact, deep into the night. What will eventually culminate in the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane late, very late, after midnight that night. Chapter 26 Verse 31, and when they, excuse me, verse 31, then Jesus said to them, so he's, he's, he wants to tell them something, and verse 31 comes after the Passover meal, and it probably comes before they arrive at Gethsemane. Now he had a lot to say, and John records a great deal of that in the Gospel of John. But Matthew just mentions this little section of instruction before they actually end up in Gethsemane. They don't disagree. They don't contradict. It's just Matthew doesn't include as much of what he said as John does. But we have, through all four Gospels, the complete picture. And so now, probably as they are making their way to Gethsemane, perhaps walking along the road, exiting the city, going down into the Kidron Valley to the east of the city. Jesus says, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now notice the response of the disciples. First Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me. Three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now, notice this on the end. And so said all the disciples. Now, go back to verse 31, where he said, all of you will be made to stumble. Peter said, the rest might, but I won't. And then the rest joined in and said, well, we won't either. They were unprepared because they didn't even understand the gravity of their own weakness. And that's the first of two steps we have to look at this morning. That will enable us or should enable us to prepare ourselves for the temptations we're going to face in life. We have to acknowledge our weakness, our vulnerability. Just assuming we can handle whatever the world throws at us and whatever Satan throws at us is not enough. Waiting till the temptation is upon us is not enough. We have to understand how vulnerable we are. That's the first step. Now... Everyone is subject to temptation. And everyone is going to stumble. Not just these fellas, not just the eleven, not just Judas, who's already betrayed him, but all of us too. We're going to stumble. We're going to yield to temptation. It's going to happen. The problem that we face... And the reason why we often stumble is because we are so unaware of our weakness. So unaware of it. Peter said, there's no way. I mean, uh, he didn't speak for the others, but Peter always takes the, the forefront in the conversations. And he was the leader among the twelve, no doubt. He says, I'll, I'll never stumble. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Jesus said, what do you mean? Before the, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny you even know me three times. Peter said, I'll die first. Peter was so confident, so self-confident, so arrogant, without realizing how weak he was. Now, granted, I think Peter was a pretty tough guy. He was not a pushover by any stretch of the imagination. And a little later, we're going to see this. When they came to arrest Jesus, Peter's the only one that pulled pulled a sword and said, I'm going to stand here and defend you from this crowd of armed accusers. Now, he did the wrong thing. Jesus' purpose was to be arrested and go to the cross. He had courage. But when Jesus said, look, this is not the way. Put away your sword. And he healed the ear of the the high priest's servant. I think that contributed to Peter's vulnerability greatly. He, he was completely caught off guard by that. I mean, he, he hadn't accepted, though Jesus had told him and the others multiple occasions, he just hadn't accepted this was what was going to happen. So he was totally spiritually unprepared to face it all. And so after he's arrested and after he's on trial, and, and three times he, he's identified as one of those who follow Jesus, he denies it out of fear, out of frustration, uh, Whatever it was. Paul helps us understand the importance of what we see here in the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. There we read this. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The sure way to be vulnerable to temptation is to just assume you can handle it. Not admit your vulnerability, not admit your weakness, and therefore not prepare yourself for what you're about to face. And by the way, we need to do that on a daily basis. We face temptation all the time. Well, not every day maybe, not every day in extreme in an extreme way, but sooner or later, more often than not, it catches up with us. Let him that thinks he can stand take heed lest he fall. Here's something that comes from 1980, I think, 1986 actually. Quite a number of years ago, and I won't use the man's name. But at that time he was a very, very well-known Christian leader in America, president of a large ministry, not a church, but a Parachurch ministry, an author, Bible teacher. At some particular conference, a reporter asked him this question. He said, If Satan were to blow you out of the water, how do you think he would do it? Now, he demonstrates a little humility at the beginning, but then he kind of loses it on the end of this statement. This is his response. He said, I'm not sure I know. All sorts of ways, I suppose. But I know there's one way he wouldn't get me. He'd never get me in the area of my personal relationships with my family. That's one place where I have no doubt I'm strong as you can get. Sound a little bit like Peter? That's not going to happen. Within two years, he committed immorality. Lost... His ministry, at least for a while, who knows what toll it took on his family. Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Here's a statement I, I read last night in doing some reading, and I wish I could tell you who wrote it, give them credit for it, but it's anonymous as far as I know, but it's such a powerful statement. I think you probably should write it down. I I should have made it available on screen. But it's not long. Listen. Here's what it says. You are only as strong as your weakest moment. You are only as strong as your weakest moment. It only takes a moment of weakness for you to stumble, for me to stumble. A moment of weakness that catches us off guard. Because we don't even understand our weakness. So step number one, if we're going to be able to deal with temptation, is to acknowledge our weakness. Step number two, now, as we come to verse... 36 is simply this. We have to anticipate temptations. Anticipate temptations. You say, well, isn't that really what we just said? Well, I understand. They're very close. If you acknowledge your weakness, you are anticipating temptations to a degree. In fact, if you don't acknowledge your weakness, you probably won't anticipate your temptations. They're not exactly the same. They're very close. They're tied together. But we have to literally expect. You see, if we don't, if we're not paying any attention to our weakness, we're probably not going to recognize the temptation either. It takes some spiritual alertness and watchfulness as we're going to see. We need to be spiritually alert, on guard, Verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now the word Gethsemane in Hebrew means olive press. The garden of Gethsemane is literally a grove of olive trees. It's in the Kidron Valley which is on the east side of Jerusalem and it's between the eastern gate of Jerusalem and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. So to the east, the Mount of Olives, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. Jesus often visited. The road winds down into the Kidron Valley steeply, and that's the road he traveled on uh, Palm Sunday when he came into town. A few days before this period we're studying. And then the road rises steeply to the eastern gate and goes into Jerusalem. Down in that valley, there's there's still to this day a grove of olive trees. I've been there. It's, it's just, just a, I don't know, an emotional place to, to, to visit, to walk through those olive trees. And the olive trees don't grow very high, but they're, they're wide, substantial trees, and you walk into that grove of trees, you'd be obscured. Sight. Jesus Probably knew the owner of the grove in those days and had plans to visit there late at night to withdraw himself and to pray. So he came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. So, in general, he says to the eleven Remember, Judas has already left. He departed the supper early, earlier in the evening. He's went to make arrangements for the betrayal, which is going to happen here in this garden a little bit later, that night. In the wee hours of the morning, no doubt. And so Jesus says in general to the eleven, sit here, I'm going on into the grove, and I'm going to pray. But then verse 37 says, and he took with him, so when he, when he goes on, and he probably just followed a well-worn path and wound its way into the grove of olive trees. He says to the leaven, said here, but when he when he actually departs to go and pray, he takes with him Peter, James, and John. Verse 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That's James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply de- distressed. And he said. To them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little further. So he leaves the eight. He takes Peter, James, and John away. Then he says, I'm I'm very distressed. I'm upset. I'm I'm here to pray. And you stay here. And then he goes a little further on. I don't know what the right terminology would be in military terms, but he had a perimeter guard of sorts, and another guard, and then he went further into the garden, following the path into the olive grove. Now, he went there to pray for a very special reason. And he did not want to be disturbed until he was finished. He knew the betrayer was coming. He knew they were going to arrest him there. He didn't set up a guard to avoid that. But he wanted to make sure he had some time, no doubt, to pray. Because he was very heavy of heart. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, verse 36. Even to death, stay here and watch with me and the watch here in the greek is a word that can be translated guard stand guard or stand watch moving on to verse 39 he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying oh my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as i will but as you will Now, for centuries, people have, Christian people have puzzled over what that means. But here's what we understand. You've got to understand a broader context here, because he's already told his disciples on multiple occasions, I'm going to be crucified, buried, and I'm going to raise the third day. He is not talking about avoiding the cross. He is not asking God the Father to change why he came into the world. He came for the purpose of being the sin bearer, the Lamb of God. We saw here a week or two ago about when Mary anointed him for his burial there at the dinner. She understood that. The disciples didn't. They were in a state of denial, and uh, it seems, that so we told them more than once. So he could not have been asking the Father to to change the plan at the last moment because he was somehow frightened or disturbed by it. It had to be something else. In fact, if you just read it, if you just understand the last part of the verse, you see too many people stop in the middle of the verse and begin to wonder, what in the world's going on? Just read the rest of it. At the end, he says, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's talking to the Father. Now, He is God the Son, who took upon Himself human flesh. So He's the God-man. He's, he's not he's not something less than God. He's still completely God the Son. But He's added human flesh, and so He is a man. He is, he's a, the perfect sin substitute for us in that regard. He has no sin of His own that will call for a judgment. He substitutes for us in judgment. But what is the cup? It's used here in a metaphorical sense of it's something that is placed before you, like a cup is placed before you at dinner. And you have to choose to take the cup and drink. Wouldn't be a very pleasant dinner if you didn't have some sweet tea, right? You know, you're probably going to drink it. But uh, I don't think he was drinking sweet tea, then. But that's what we would drink. <laughs> He's referring to something that has to do with the cross, but not the cross, not the not his death, not the plan. So what what is he talking about? Well, let's turn a couple of pages over to Matthew twenty-seven. I want to draw your attention to Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, the context of that verse is after Jesus has been on the cross for a number of hours. And it references now the last Three hours of his cross experience. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that's when he died, there was darkness over all the land. Why? It's the middle of the day. By the way, that's miraculous. It's not an eclipse because an eclipse doesn't last three hours. It's totally miraculous. God's trying to, God is trying to tell us something, show us something through that darkness. Darkness always represents the absence of God. Sin is portrayed as darkness versus light. God is always light. It's a kind of glory of God. A bright light. The transfiguration of Christ. A shining. You think of the New Jerusalem on the New Earth. There'll be, no night, uh, there'll be no night, there'll be no night, there'll be no, no sun, no moon. God himself is the light of the place. But there's darkness. It's a demonstration of the fact that something is going on between God the Father and God the Son here. Now let's go to verse, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus, or the last thing he said, cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, and here's the interpretation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that uh, echoed by David way back in Psalm 22, prophetically. Jesus always referred to God the Father as my Father, except here where he calls him, my God, my God. There's something here we need to understand from this. There is a literal separation between God the Father and God the Son. He doesn't even address God the Father in the most intimate way like he always did. And there's darkness that's fallen on the scene. What what was happening, Paul again gives us some help with this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Here Paul says, for he, referring to Christ and his death, for he, first, the him refers to Christ, the he of the Father, he the Father, he made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Substitution. But Jesus, God the Son, in His human flesh, literally made to be sin for us. He literally suffered the punishment for sin. He became separated from God the Father in some regard. He died a physical death on the cross, and that was necessary. Where He had to shed His blood, as the Old Testament Types told us over and over. But he also endured a spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God. Spiritual death for those who are unbelievers eventually is hell, where they are literally completely separated from God. They're still alive, but it's spiritual death. In the enduring of that, in in the literally becoming that Object of judgment, punishment. He was, he was sinless. I think he recoiled at the very thought of even enduring the results of sin, although they were somebody else's. And so, I believe that's what he is. Referring to when he uses the term cup. That we needed to understand. But let's get back. To the flow of our. Outline here. Anticipating temptations. Verse 30. He prayed. "O my father. If it. It's possible to let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Completely resigned to the plan of God. Then, verse 40, then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Peter's already beginning to stumble. He said, I'll never stumble. Everybody else might. I won't. He's already stumbling out of the gate. Now, let's be honest here. We've all fallen asleep praying at one time or another, right? (laughs) Well, I, I, I think so. You get up early in the morning or even sometimes other times during the day. You know, I will settle down. I'll read the scripture. I'll spend some time in prayer. And you're tired. You didn't, you know, you didn't have a good night's sleep. You worked hard. Whatever it is, the first thing you know, you go to sleep. So, you know, this is very, very late after midnight, no doubt. It's been a very long and, uh, in many ways a difficult day. not an unusual occurrence physically but Jesus is indicating there is a there is a a gravity to this situation that should have had them stone cold awake you know i mean just con- concerned but they weren't why they weren't ready Mind somewhere else. They hadn't even heard what he's been telling them about his death. What could you not watch with me one hour? And then he says this in verse 41. And these are commands. He says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And then Jesus adds this, the spirit indeed is willing But the flesh is weak. Yeah, well, the flesh is weak. They just didn't understand that. See, Peter had already determined his flesh wasn't weak. He said, I'll never stumble. I'll die before I deny you. No, 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 Peter. Your flesh is weak. Your inability to even watch with me one hour illustrates it. Watch and pray, he says. We need to be spiritually alert. We need to be spiritually watchful. In a spiritual sense, being on guard regarding what's on the horizon, what we may have to face. Now, Jesus had told them way, way back in his ministry, early on, he gave them the Lord's prayer. We call it Matthew chapter six, verse thirteen. He'd already told them, "Look, you're going to need to be praying about temptation." Here's the verse: "And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one." For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's the last statement in the Lord's prayer. Unfortunately, the King James and the New King James translation as far as I'm concerned, leaves a little to be desired here. Do not lead us into temptation makes it sound as if God is tempting us or will tempt us and we're asking Him not to. But we're told elsewhere in the Scripture, God doesn't tempt anybody to sin. What He is indicating here in the Lord's Prayer, and the way it probably should be translated is, do not allow us to be led into temptation." Lord, I'm asking you to give me the strength to see it, to avoid it, or else, you know, you just steer it, you help me to steer clear of it, that I'm not confronted with it. But in, in a very real sense, this model prayer tells us we're to be praying about this matter of temptation on a regular basis. You see, if we pray about it every day, we're going to be thinking about it. We're going to be a little bit more alert, a little bit more tuned in to the possibility, right? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18 for a moment. Ephesians 6 and verse 18. After, after Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God, and we're not going to go into that whole discussion, but putting on the whole armor of God is a matter of being alert and and ready. Because we're told to put it on and leave it on. It's to be put on ahead of time before you go into battle. Armor doesn't do you any good if you wait till you're in the battle and you've got to put it on, then it's too late. The same is true about spiritual preparation for temptation. If you just, if you just, you know, casually go along, you're unaware, you're, You you think you're strong enough to handle it when you're confronted with it, and then suddenly you're in the battle, it's too late to put on your armor. But he winds up that whole discussion in verse 18 of putting on armor, the armor of God, by saying, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And notice how he couples it with being watchful. Being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Prayer and watchfulness always is put together. In this regard. And it is here. Jesus said, Watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Pray in advance. Be watching in advance. Be on guard for it. Be ready for it. You know, it's too late to furiously row your rowboat back upstream when you're about to go over the waterfall. Right? Guess what we're talking about here? Preparation, anticipation is important. But what, what do we watch for? We've talked about prayer and the, how prayer plays into it, but what, what is it we're to be watching for? Well, David wrote that verse we often quote. It says, my, uh, thy word, Have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee? Look at Psalm 119 something. You see, the first aspect of watchfulness is to understand the moral will of God, what we're supposed to do and not do. If you're driving down the road, if you're like me, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to speed limits. And I don't usually exceed them, but I just, I just kind of drive, you know, I just kind of like Peter when he's not watching, you know. (laughs) But when I see that police cruiser sitting there beside the road, what's the first thing I do? I look down at my speedometer. And then when I see my speedometer, I say, I wonder what the speed limit is. And then you let off on the, on the accelerator and you start hoping and praying that you're okay. Well, there's where we begin. We shouldn't know the speed limit. That'd be the first, the first thing you need to know, right? Just like the first thing we need to know when facing temptation, what is God's moral will? What is it we're supposed to do, not do? We, under, if we don't know what the Bible says, we're not going to be able to avoid temptation. We don't even know what, what is temptation and what isn't. So there's, there's the beginning. By word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against it. But we also have to keep an eye on our weakness. Now, let's go to, let's go to 1 John. Chapter two verses fifteen and sixteen. These guys in the booth back here, they gotta be on their toes. So this is all out of order. right? Sometimes I just revise it as I go through it. So it, it happens. Maybe the Lord's revised, it, I don't know. First uh, John two fifteen says, Do not love the world or <laughs> the things in the world, the worlds where we live, the worlds where temptation abounds. That's where we're going to confront temptation. Don't don't be concerned about having the world's love or loving the world yourself. Don't, don't, Don't try to fit in. Be not conformed to the world, says Paul in Romans 12, 2. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now let's go on verse 16. For all that is in the world, here's the temptation you're going to face in the world. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. Now, the lust of the flesh is the desire we have to satisfy our fleshly desires. The lust of the eyes is desiring to possess things we don't have and probably shouldn't have, or we would have. So, the lust of the flesh is about Immorality and uh, substance abuse, all those things. The lust of the eyes, that's materialism. That's, That's loving things and money more than God. And then he says the pride of life. Well, the pride of life has to do with what I want, not what God wants. It has to do with what I deserve. And so on. These are the three areas where we're going to be tempted or confronted with temptation. Every temptation known to man will come down one of these three paths. Sometimes they come down two paths at once as one temptation, but they all, every temptation is one of those three. Some variation of it. Let's go back. To the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 6, the very first temptation. The temptation of Eve, Adam, in the garden. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, what's that? Lust of the flesh. The desire to satisfy fleshly, fleshly desires, fleshly wants. Uh, that sort of thing when she saw it was good for food that 's the forbidden fruiter she 's talking about when she saw it was good for food i think, I think I, I think I'd like to eat that. happens to me every time I walk through the grocery store I think i'd like to eat that i i shouldn't eat at all but I... when she saw that the tree was good for food that it was pleasant to the eyes. <laughs> not only would I like to eat it, I'd just like to have it. i just like to... It, it, it's not said it was an apple, but think of an apple you take to the teacher, you know, polished up and sits on it and put it on her desk, you know. I just... You want to give that to the teacher, but... You might not want to take it to the teacher. You might just want to keep it for yourself. We don't, we don't, even, we don't even do that anymore. <laughs> that's that's old... Old time thing. I just she just wanted to possess it because she couldn't have it. God said no. And she saw that it was a tree desirable to make one wise. Pride. She thought God was holding out on her. There was something else she could obtain for herself. Some status, some knowledge. Even God likeness, deity, perhaps. Same three. It's a powerful temptation because Satan just wove them all into one. Pow. Three cords of temptation woven together, aimed right at her. Now, I'm not going to put this on screen. Because it's 11 verses. But let me summarize the temptation of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. I may get them out of order, but he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness in the same three ways. First, the devil said, you know, if you're the son of God, and the Greek actually reads this way, since you are the Son of God, he knew who he was. Since you are the Son of God, turn that rock into bread. Why don't you just turn it into bread you'll have something to eat? Because he was fasting. It was the will of God, the Father, for him to fast during this temptation. It would not have been wrong for him to turn a rock into bread otherwise. But not at that moment. Not, that wasn't God, the Father's will at that moment. So Satan said, aren't you hungry? Wouldn't you like to have some bread? There it is. Lust of the flesh. <clears throat> and then, Jesus, Satan took Jesus up into a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, hey, I can give all these to you if you bow down and worship me. Hey, What's that? Lust of the eyes. You say, well, isn't he the creator? Doesn't all things belong to you? Oh, wait a minute. As Jesus Christ, the God man, he was destined to rule all, and he is destined to rule all, and he will rule all, but that was not the time. First had to come the cross. So, for him to take possession of the world prematurely would be a violation of God's will. Notice here, in each case, he knew the moral parameters of the situation. And notice what he had to keep an eye on: lust of the flesh, and now the lust of the eyes. Well, the third aspect, Satan said, "Why don't you? Know, since you're the son of God, why don't you just go up to the pinnacle of the temple and cast yourself off? We know it's prophesied in the book of Psalms. The angels will not allow you to die. They'll bear you up. They'll save you. That was true. But to throw himself off the temple in a vain display of his power." would have been a matter of pride, because that wasn't God's will either. He came to humble himself, even become a man, to bear the sins of men. What was that? Pride of life. Every temptation, it holds all the way through Scripture, every temptation falls into one of those three categories. So not only keep your eye on the Word of God, the the speed limit, if you will, but you've got to also understand where is temptation going to come from if you're going to be watchful you better watch one of those you better watch all three but i guarantee you every one of us have one of those three that we're most vulnerable to it might take a little extra effort and watchfulness so that's what we watch He came to his disciples, found them sleeping, and said, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yes, it was. And again the second time he went and he prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. By the way, in the Greek where it says, if this cup cannot pass away... It's what's called a first class condition in the Greek. And again, it should be translated, since this cup cannot pass away. First class conditions are assumed true. That's the same condition you find back in verse 30, uh, 39 when he said, Oh, my father, if it is possible. He was saying, Oh, my father, father, <laughs> since it's possible, since it's what you've determined, you know, it can't be changed, but my desire is for it to pass, if there's any other way. He knew God's will. He knew what God intended. He's asking, is there another way because of him having to become sin for us? The second time, verse 42, he went away and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Now, he's finished with the prayer. He's dealt with the burden of his heart. He's ready for the moment. They are not. They are absolutely not prepared. They could have been, but they were not. And he came to his disciples, verse 45, and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He fully accepted it. He understood the will of God. He was ready to face it in every sense not not that he was weak or sinful in any way but spiritually completely utterly prepared understanding the will of the father accepting the will of the father, they are not prepared you have to anticipate temptations how much warning did randall truman have before he was swept away and lost his life on may 18th 1980 Two months. The whole sequence of events began on March 20th, nearly two months prior, with a lot of notable volcanic activity, earth tremors, even a minor eruption on March 27th. And then it began, the mountain began emitting steam and ash, spewing out. Small eruptions continued day after day for two months. Scientists confirmed a, a bulge in the mountain a mile in diameter moving up from the base of the mountain toward the top. Hundreds of people were evacuated. But not Harry. Come May 18th, he was unprepared. He lost his life. I, I know that's just an illustration. But it illustrates how dense we as human beings can be to danger. How totally unaware of it when it's really standing right at the door. And that is true on the spiritual plane for us. We can't lose our salvation, but we, you know, we, we go to Him if we sin and we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 9. But we do have to deal with the consequences of our sin, damage to relationships, loss of our job. Who knows? I mean, we could list a whole bunch of potential things we might have to read, so we need to be prepared.